right. Well, let me start by saying that I hope you guys have enjoyed studying the book of Galatians as much as I have. It is probably uh, my second favorite book, right up there in my opinion with uh, Romans and the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's very solid. Uh, there's a lot of truth in the book and there's a lot of a lot of things that are very, very different than the way we think nowadays. Um, I want to start by kind of setting this, the, uh, the scene for the book of Galatians. Um, let me actually go real quick to this slide. So, really quick, just giving you perspective. Let me find the, where's the laser at? There it is. So I don't know if you guys can see on this map, but this book is written to the churches in Galatia, which is right in this region. Um, on Paul's first missionary journey, he would have started off in Antioch and then come around and made a loop and then gone back. So as far as setting the scene for this book, um, we believe that the book was written from Antioch after he gets back from his first missionary journey. Um, his first missionary journey went from 46 to 48 AD, um, and we believe that he wrote this in roughly 48 AD, 48 or 49, before traveling down to Jerusalem. Does anyone know what happened in Jerusalem in 49-50 AD? This wasn't in the questions. It's Acts chapter 15, I believe. The Jerusalem Council, exactly. So in this, uh, in this instance, the Jerusalem Council, um, you'll see a lot of the similarities that happened. And it was a big, there's a lot of things going on with uh, the early church. So a lot of the debate that was going on was which of the Old Testament laws needed to apply to New Testament believers. So you'll see a lot of the similarities between the book of Galatians and what you see in the Jerusalem Council. Um, so that happened in 49 AD, and then with um, Acts 15, you also see that um, Pharisees wanted circumcision. You'll see that in the book of Galatians, as well as um, you see the apostles giving testimony of how the Gentiles are being saved through faith, and it's not a requirement of the law. There's no law that's required. Um, so just giving you a little bit of perspective as to what they were thinking in this time period, because we believe that Christ was crucified in roughly 30 to 33 AD. So this book is likely written less than 20 years after the crucifixion. So a lot of the Old Testament, well, a lot of the Jews would have still been holding very closely to a lot of what the Old Testament laws would require. So now with the new covenant, what applies and what no longer is a requirement in this new covenant? So we'll see that throughout the book of Galatians, as well as in Acts chapter 15. So, it's a little bit of the introduction. Um, let's start. I, before we start, I wanted to give, mention two things. In this book, um, with the time period, this is the first book that Paul wrote. So you'll see a little bit difference in the first couple chapters where he actually tries to defend his standing point and his position as an apostle. So the two things that I thought it was interesting that he did in the first four verses, which I think I'm actually going to read because I think it's important. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's interesting in here, in the first four verses, he does two things. First off, he claims authority as an apostle. Okay? He claims an apostle of, of God. And secondly, he reiterates the gospel. And he's going to try to defend that following up in the next two chapters. So, really quick, let's get started with the first question. According to Paul, in verses 6 and 7, how many gospels are there? One. There's one gospel, okay? So, there isn't, there isn't any other way. There's one who is salvation, and there isn't, a different, there isn't a different gospel being preached by Peter. You're not getting a gospel of through faith alone through Paul, and then you're getting another gospel through Peter. And we'll see that more as we get into um, them giving him the right hand of fellowship. But uh, he all goes on to say um, that if me or any other angel from heaven gives you a different gospel, let him be accursed. He's not, it's not real. There's only one gospel, and that's it. So I was doing a little bit of studying. Uh, this would actually be a good kid. Mormonism is a good example of where someone got a vision from an angel and uh, their gospel is different. It's a different gospel than what Paul is teaching to the Galatians in, uh, in this book. So that leads us to the next part of the question. Um, what, is, what is the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians that they are turning away from? Right, right. So the gospel is that it's through faith in Christ alone. There's no works. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing that you can contribute. And as soon as you can, we'll see this later in the book, but as soon as you try to contribute anything to your salvation, you're not trusting in Christ alone. And you're no longer, count, you're no longer relying on his sacrifice to save you from your sins. So let's move on to the next question. In verses 11 through 24, Paul explains his former life in Judaism, his conversion, and his early ministry. Paul persecuted the church, but Christ still used him mightily to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. If Christ can use him, then is there anyone that God can't use? No, there really isn't. Paul is the perfect example of seeing how he, you see him at the stoning of Stephen, He's holding the coats. He's there. And he was, one thing you got to give Paul credit for is that he was full-heartedly, no matter where his beliefs were, he was 100% motivated to do what he thought was right. Okay, So beforehand, where he thought that the right thing to do was to persecute the church, he was persecuting the church. He's traveling. He's um, throwing people in prison. But then once Christ stopped him on the road and he saw the truth, did a complete change, and we'll see that um, <laughs> he, he, uh, his testimony is amazing because he went from that to, he wrote most of our, new, well, he wrote a large portion of our New Testament, and he used, Christ used him mightily for the gospel and to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, someone that was so heartedly against all of that was used mightily, and he had been set apart before he was born 
Before he was born, Christ had chosen him before the foundation of the world to do this and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then the last part of that question, at the end of the day, who deserves the glory? God. Okay. There is no other reason. There's nothing that Paul did. Paul didn't change his life. God changed his life. God opened his eyes to see the truth. And then once he showed him the truth through the spirit, he led him. And at the end of the day, Paul recognizes that. And uh, at the end of the chapter, it's the last verse, and they glorified God because of me. That was, Paul's, that, was, that was Paul's goal in his ministry. He wanted them to see his life and what he was doing. And he was meant, he was wanting to reflect all the glory to God, which is what we should be doing as believers, right? We should be taking all the glory and saying, look to God, because he deserves all the glory for who I am as a person and what I'm doing currently. It's not me, it's him. So that's chapter one in a nutshell. And I will encourage you guys, this is like a satellite view. I would say a bird eye, bird's eye view of Galatians, but this is a satellite view because we're just flying over it. Um, there's a lot of correlations to the Old Testament, and I would encourage you to study it out if you guys have time because it is a phenomenal book. Let's move on to chapter two. In verses one to 10, what are the apostles' response to Paul and his ministry? Yes, Hutch. Yes. Yeah, so he's, Paul's in his defense, he's saying, all right, um, well, I've, first off, he, he gives a defense of how he studied. So God set him apart, he traveled away, he was away from the apostles. So he's not, he's not going under the apostles and trying to learn from them so that he's getting the gospel secondhand. No, he got it firsthand. But then when he met up with the apostles, the apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship. They said, what you're saying is true. It's valid. And they were validating his message, and they were validating him as an apostle, okay? So they're giving him equal playing field with themselves and the spread of the gospel. So he's not a second-rate second apostle. He's an apostle of God, chosen by God. And uh, it's significant because it proves that what Paul was teaching was the same gospel, okay? You're not going to be getting the right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John if he's teaching a different gospel than what— um, than what they're teaching. They're teaching the same gospel, and they sent him out to the Gentiles to proclaim the truth and to spread the gospel. So let's continue. So from chapter two, are we justified by works of the law or by faith? This is a very easy one. Faith, it's faith alone. It's there's no works. It's through faith alone in Christ. The law can't save. And uh, Paul states that he has died to the law and he no longer lives in a realm where he's trying to gain favor with God through what he's doing. He's living his life in devotion to God and he has crucified his former self. He's crucified who he was and his own wants and his own desires to live for God and to serve him. And it's a personal, it's a personal relationship with God because God chose him and God came and died to save Paul he chose him before the foundation of the world. The same is true with us. It's personal. He came and he came to save those he had chosen before the foundation of the world. All right. Moving on. Um, in verse 21, Paul gives us an if-then statement. If righteousness were through the law. Oh, 
What if righteousness were through the law? Right. So if, all right, so if righteousness, any other? Yes. Right, exactly. Okay, so if we could live a life in perfect obedience, then Christ did not have to come and die. God the Father didn't have to send his son to earth to be born of a human. He could have just said, all right, guys, good luck. Live your perfect life, and you can come join me in heaven. Okay? So that's, obviously, we all know that's not possible. And so Paul, Paul is a very logical person, which I think I connect with him on a lot of levels because I'm very logical. I don't know how many else is there with me, but uh, uh, Paul is very logical, and he gives a ridiculous, you know, if this happened, then Christ was foolish in coming to die. So, um, yeah, so he gives that question. Um, so I, I said take a moment to, uh, oh wait, to, yeah, take a moment to praise God that he sent his son to live a perfect sin li- sinless life so we can be justified through faith in him. Because if it was up to us to live our lives um, perfectly, we would never reach heaven. There's no way. Um, it's all through Christ, and it's all through his perfect sacrifice. So let's keep moving to chapter 3. After we've been justified, are we being perfected or sanctified through the law or by faith in Christ? Yes, Claire. Right. Right. So it's, it's through faith alone. And does anyone know what, uh, this wasn't a question, but what example does he give um, in chapter 3 of this faith and being counted as righteousness? Who does he set forth as the example? Abraham. So he points him back to the Old Testament. And I think it's interesting throughout this, throughout this book because um, Paul is reaching out. To, it's, it's really kind of ironic because he's, he's trying to teach He's trying to explain to the Gentiles that you don't have to obey the Old Testament law while at the same time he's pointing back to the Old Testament. He's pointing back to Abraham on multiple levels. He points him back to um, Abraham. He points him back for the covenants. He points him back for the law. And he's pointing him back to the Old Testament. And he gives the example of Abraham and how he believed God and it had been counted to him as righteousness. Um, Yeah. So moving on to the second part of this question. Who were the promises made to in verse 16 of chapter 3? Yeah. And his offspring. And who is his offspring? Yes, indirectly. Yes. It is Christ. So, yes, so the offspring that it was made to is Christ. And then um, through that, so he, he lays out the example of um, the law came 430 years after Abraham. Okay, So the law can't change a promise that was made to Abraham. 
and the covenant that was made with Abraham. And it doesn't change the inheritance of the promise that God made to Abraham. Okay? So if the law, and I'll ask this question, if the law has no impact, um, if the law has no impact on God's plan, and it was rooted in his promise, why did he give the law? This wasn't a question. Does anyone know why he gave the law? Right. So the law was to take that gap between us and God and make it huge. Okay. It was it was there to help us see our sin. And it was there to help us see that we could never live up to the standard that God had set. It was, take, it was to take the distance between us and magnify it. And, uh, and uh, it was to provide a, a, temporary, a temporary way to deal with sin. You see that in the sacrifices. Because it, there was sacrifices and it was there to help them see that uh, or it was there un- temporarily um, until the offspring would come and the offspring came and the offspring was Christ. And Christ fulfilled all the laws for us. So moving on to our next question. Through our faith in Christ, what relationship do we now have with God? According to verse 26. We're sons. That's right. We've been, we've been adopted into his family. And there's no distinction. Okay? There's no distinction between... Um, there's no distinction. There's, there's no Jews. There's no Gentiles. There's one family. We're all ad- we've all been adopted into God's family. How amazing is that? To just think about the fact that... It doesn't matter what you did. Look at Paul. We've now been adopted and we're now one family in God. No distinctions. So moving on to the next question. According to verse 29, who is Abraham's offspring? I think you had mentioned that earlier. Yeah. So he brings it full circle and he says, all right, so the promises were made to the offspring. But if you are in Christ, then you are the offspring of Abraham and your heirs according to the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis. And he ties that back. And I think, uh, I think Mr. Sparkman mentioned this uh, as he's going through Romans. There's the, uh, that idea in Romans chapter 11 of being grafted in, okay, so as Gentiles, which I think most of us here would be Gentiles, we've been grafted into the promises made to Abraham. And we've been added to that. Doesn't mean that Jews aren't, can't be included because they're part of the natural, I would say, the branch. But as Gentiles, we've now been grafted in to those promises through Christ, which is who the promises were made to from the very beginning. And we're fellow heirs 
of the promises made to Abraham back in chapter in that back in Genesis. Where's my clicker? Put it in my pocket. So moving on to chapter four. In verse four, Paul lists two details about how God sent forth his son. What are those details? Yes, Claire. Yes, he was born of a woman and he was born under the law. Okay, so along with that, why are those two details significant? Why does he list those? Yes. Yes, yeah. Right, so he, through that, he was, we were able to be redeemed and were able to be saved does anyone know the significance? And I'll be, I'll be honest, this question was a little vague and it's not directly in the text. But does anyone know why those two things are important? Yes, Hutch. It was to fulfill, fulfill prophecy. Yep, they're both, uh, they were both mentioned in the Old Testament. Yes. Correct. So he was born of a woman, which means that he was 100% man, okay? This whole thing doesn't work if he's not 100% man. And you'll see that it was also going back to Romans, how um, he can't be our example. So we have, bef- there's in, in uh, Romans, you get the first Adam, which fell into sin and brought whole, the whole mankind into sin. And then you have the second Adam, which those are in Christ, the second Adam is our representative. But in order for him to fulfill that on our behalf and to be our example, he had to be 100% man. He was also 100% God, but he had to be 100% man to be able to be that example and to fulfill that for us. Take the sin upon us, be, take the sin upon himself and die for us, okay? And then the second one, he was born under the law. What's the significance of that? Yes. Right. He had to be born on under the he had to be born under the law so he could fulfill the law for us. He had to keep the law. Like every other man who was born under the law, but unlike anyone else, what did he do? He fulfilled it completely. He kept the whole law. See, not only did he I th- I think a lot of times I I don't think about the fact that you think about his death but his death doesn't mean anything unless he kept the whole law, okay? He had to fulfill the law in order to redeem us, as he said about redeeming those who were under the law. So it's important that he was born under a woman. He was 100% man. He was born under the law to redeem us and to save us from the law that we couldn't keep. We could never keep it. Um, one thing I didn't read, so redeem in this instance talks about um, to buy out or to buy. So in that, in that time period, you would, have, you would have slaves and you could buy someone, you could pay the purchase to free them out of that slavery and you've paid the price. So the word here is in Greek is that same word. So Christ, through his death, he paid the price. He paid the price to set us free and to buy us out of the slavery that we were in 
um, to sin and to death um, because we couldn't keep the law. And then after that, he adopted us. So not only did he set us free, but he adopted us into his family and made us joint heirs with Christ. So in verses 21 to 31, what example is given to, by Paul to illustrate the difference between the two covenants? So you've got two covenants here. You've got the covenant, and I think it says the Mosaic, uh, the Sinai. I think it says Sinai. It's the Old Testament. It's the um, Mosaic law. And you have the new covenant or the uh, covenant of grace. What two covenant or what does he illustrate? What's the uh, picture that he paints here? Yes. Right. So he paints this picture here, and he goes back to Abraham, which is interesting because, you know, this whole debate is, you know, they're trying to say that we're children of Abraham, and now he's bringing them back to, to Abraham, and he's explaining a lot of, I think he's trying to help them understand the significance. So he's got, you got Hagar, and you have Sarah. So he paints the picture of, these, he had two, um, you have Hagar and Sarah, okay. So I think I already answered this, but what, what are the two covenants that he is illustrating with these two women? Yes. Exactly. So he's got two two covenants. He's got the Mosaic law on one hand, who is Hagar, and he has the uh, the new covenant that we have through Christ, illustrated by Sarah. So I asked you a question, and this is I'll be honest, this is another tricky question. I apologize. Um, I was thinking through this, and I was like, wow, that's a good thought. So in your own words. Could you guys explain the correlation between the two women or the covenants? Say that again. So I said, uh, in your own words, can you explain the correlation between these two women, Hagar and Sarah, and the two covenants that he's trying to describe with this picture? Hundred percent. So uh, yes. So it was it was a tricky question. I apologize for that one. But yes, Mr. Sparkman nailed it right on the head. So the uh, he paints this picture of you know you have Abraham, who was promised offspring, right? He was promised to have a son, and he's getting older, and he's like, uh, this isn't gonna work. You know, I'm past the age. My wife is past the age, and so let me try to help God fulfill His promise. So what's the natural thing? Well, I'll take Hagar, okay? And I'll, have, I'll help God fulfill the promise that he made to me. So that makes sense in our human eyes, but that wasn't what God intended, right? God 
intended for the promise to come through Isaac, okay? So here we have a picture of a man trying to, to do it, and Ish, in this picture, Ishmael represents man's way, or the way of flesh, okay? So he's religious self-effort and a works righteousness. So he's, he's trying to do it on himself. He's trying to, he's trying to handle the situation apart from God and apart from what we think would, be, would make sense, okay? So on the opposite side, you've got Isaac, all right? And Isaac represents the way of faith through Christ alone. And God and his imputed righteousness on our behalf, okay? So every believer, and this is, so Isaac is the child of promise, okay? It was the promise made to Abraham. Every believer, like Isaac, has to be supernaturally conceived, has to be um, chosen by God, and has to be, their eyes have to be opened, okay? We're all dead in our sins, and we'll see this next week week in Ephesians. We're all dead in our sins. We're all blinded. We won't see. Christ has to open our eyes, and the offspring of God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ, okay? So we've got the child of, we've got Ishmael, who is the child of the flesh, and you've got Isaac, who is supernaturally conceived through God and the power of God. And he, Paul uses this illustration to try to help them understand these two covenants um, back in Genesis, and he, uh, um, he uses this illustration. So, Moving on, I apologize, we're, uh, we're moving very fast. If you guys have any questions, I would love to discuss this further. I've tried to condense the book of Galatians into 45 minutes. I think we're on track. I put time things in my notes to keep me moving. All right, so moving on to chapter 5. Okay, so this, this book is really written, um, Paul writes a lot of his letters um, kind of along the same lines um, where he has the first several, the first chunk he writes almost as theology, and he tries to lay the groundwork for, all right, this, therefore this, this is what this means. And then at the end, he turns it, and he's like, all right, now because of everything I've written, and you see this in Romans as well, where he says, wherefore, and then he gives, this is what it means, and this is how you should live it out. So starting in chapter 5, he flips it, and he says, all right, now because of everything we've talked about, this is what it means, this is how it directly applies to us. Okay, so according to verses 2 to 5, what is a person obligated to do if they hold to circumcision? Yes? Yeah, that's kind of scary, right? <laughs> so if, you, are you, if you're saying, you know what, I know it's through Christ's sacrifice alone, but just to be on the safe side, I think I'm going to hold to, you know, just, uh, and obviously in this time period, circumcision is not what we deal with. So I'm going to change a little bit and I'm going to say, all right, I know it's through Christ alone, but I really need to be going to church every week or I need to pay offering or I need to do this or that. Now I'm not saying that those shouldn't be a part of your life because I do believe that through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I think a lot of that will be evident. But as far as salvation goes, none of that counts for anything. It's through Christ's sacrifice alone. And as soon as you add anything, you eliminate the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. 
His sacrifice was 100% sufficient, and it is the only thing required for salvation. You have to put your faith in Christ alone. And once you add anything else, no matter what it is, you are obligated to keep the whole law because you're not trusting his sacrifice alone. So, there's only one way to heaven, and that's to perfectly <coughs> obey the law. And you're either going to try to do it on your, by yourself and try to completely obey the law 100%, or you're going to put your faith in Christ and his finished work. He fulfilled the law for us, and his righteousness is imputed on our behalf. There's not two ways. There's one way, and it's through Christ alone, because you're not going to be able to keep the whole law. So then he continues on, and the second part of that question is, how does Paul describe their relationship with Christ? They're severed. They're cut off. Okay. So I wanted to make something clear, because in my studies, um, I, think it's, I think it's important to note Paul is not saying that you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that at all. What Paul is saying is that you can't live by grace alone, through faith alone, and the law. You're one or the other. You can't do both. Okay? So to attempt to be justified by the law is to reject the grace of God. And it's to reject his sacrifice. So it's through grace, it's through faith in Christ alone that saves you. And if you're counting on anything else, adding to his sacrifice, you're severed from Christ. Christ is of no use to you because now you're counting on your works to save you, which is not going to get you anywhere. Moving on. So if we are freed, if we are free from the law and its requirements, how are we supposed to live our lives according to 13 and 14? Yes. Serve one another. So I think he talks about it in several, in several books, but because he saved you and he, because he set you free, it doesn't mean you can live your life however you want, okay? He's set you free to love and to serve one another, okay? And we should be looking to Christ as the ultimate example. I mean, look at the God of the universe came to, came to earth, and what did he do at the Last Supper? He washed his disciples' feet. He's serving them. And I, I, uh, I want to read real quick from Philippians. Philippians is coming up, but I wanted to read um, a passage from there. Have this mind among yourselves. This is Philippians 2, 5 to 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being formed in the likeness of men. Okay? So in love, serve one another and use Christ look to Christ as the ultimate example of that love and service. Okay? So how do we how do we do that? Okay? So how are we supposed to love and serve one another? What has Christ given us as the uh that ensembles us that enables us. That's a spelling error. That enables us to love and serve one another. What has he given us? The Holy Spirit. So he didn't just die for us and give us a perfect example of how to love and serve one another. He gave us the spirit to come live inside of us to help us to do those in the way that we couldn't do in ourselves. And this Holy Spirit he's given us um, to help us to love and serve one another. So uh, really quick, what are some of the ways that we could, um, what's a few ways that you could use your spiritual gifts to show your love for one another and serve each other? 
What are, what are some examples? Just off the top of your head. There's there's a lot. Encouragement, phone calls, cards, the other way. Yes. Yeah, John. Discipling, yeah. There's, there's endless, I mean, there's not endless, but there's so many ways we can love and serve one another. We can pray for one another. We can share the good news of the gospel there's nothing better that someone will ever receive than the good news of the gospel. And to tell them, as Paul's done for, these, for the churches in Galatia, that Christ died to save you from your sins. You don't have to be held captive under a law that you were never meant to fulfill. Christ has set you free. You don't have to spend your life trying to obey these list of rules. He already did that for you. In turn... Love one another, okay? Show that love of Christ to those that are around you and show them the, share with them the good news of the gospel. So moving on, seven minutes for chapter six. All right. If anyone had room to boast, it was Paul. If anyone was looking at the Old Testament law, Paul did a pretty good job. He didn't do it perfectly, but he did a pretty good job. So, According to verse 14, what is the only thing that Paul is willing to boast in? The cross of Christ. Okay. There's only one thing that Paul is going to boast in. Paul. And that's the cross of Christ. Okay. He's not going to boast in the fact that he was a tribe of Benjamin or that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He's not going to boast in the fact that he did this or he did that. He's not even going to boast in what he, that he wrote a large portion of the New Testament. Because everything he is is because of the cross of Christ and what Christ did for him on that cross to save him from his sins. And Paul knows that. And so he wants to magnify Christ and point them, everyone, to the cross. He wants to boast in the cross of Christ. Nothing else matters. And uh, Christ has made him a new creation um, through the cross. So, in conclusion, wow, we got plenty of time. This is great. All right, so throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has explained our relationship to the law and the significance of, his new, of this new covenant that is available through faith in Christ. Looking back at Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, how is this new covenant foretold by the prophets? How was it foretold? Looking back at Jeremiah Sorry, Claire. Yep. So he he talks about in uh, in Jeremiah, and I'll just I'll read it real quick. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So you have a nod there back to the Mosaic law. Uh, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The plan of salvation was part of the, this plan of salvation through the cross was all part of the plan. Going all the way back to the Old Testament. And now, as people that live after the cross, we know how it happened. We know what happened. We know that it was the cross. And the mystery has been revealed. I want you guys to pay attention in the next couple of weeks because there's several times through Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians where Paul talks about the mystery has now been revealed. And it's the, mis- the mystery is how are the Gentiles going to be included into the promises made to Abraham? And now, as people that live after the cross, we can see that Christ fulfilled the law and he opened the gates wide for all people so that the promises made to Abraham, how you'll be a blessing to all nations of the world. Christ flung those doors wide open and he opened it up to not only the Jews, which primarily, and I'm not going to say completely because you do see people that were non-Jews in the Old Testament, but now the gates are wide open for all people groups. And through Christ, all the nations of the world have been blessed because he had taken us and he has grafted us back into the promises made to Abraham in Genesis. So the mystery has been revealed. And Christ um, is the one that deserves all the glory through his work on the cross to save us from our sins. We have two minutes if there are any other questions or comments before we wrap up. Perfect. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer real quick. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for the cross. Thank you for um, using Paul in a way to, um, to share the news of the gospel to the Gentiles and to make you known throughout, um, throughout the known area of the goodness and how Gentiles can now be included in the promises that have been made in Genesis and how they can be saved from their sins um, through your finished work on the cross. Please help us not to shy away from that. Please help us not to um, help us not to restrict that. Help us to share the good news of the gospel with those we come in contact with and tell them how their sins can be forgiven through your finished work on the cross. Help us to live for you. Be with us as we um, begin our worship service that you would be glorified and that we would, um, that we would lift you high. And I praise all in your name.